Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Let me echo what uh, Larry just prayed for in thanking the interior decorating team for their hard work in preparing our sanctuary for the Christmas Advent season. Um, It looks beautiful uh, under the leadership of Debbie Nellen. Thanks, Debbie, for your leadership there and for all of those who put in a lot of time getting our sanctuary beautified in this way. Uh, Larry also prayed about this elder in Chengdu, China, who's been sentenced. want to let you know about an event that's coming up here at New Life on um, Monday night, not not tomorrow, but the following Monday, December 9th, we're going to have a prayer meeting here for the church in China. The China Partnership has requested that we do this um, because December 9th marks the one-year anniversary of the beginning of the governmental crackdown on the church in China. December 9th, 2018, that's when Early Rain Church was raided. That's when Pastor Wang Yi was uh, arrested. Actually, there were about a, a hundred members of the church arrested. Most of them released, <clears throat> a few of them detained, including the elder that we just prayed for, but including the pastor of the church as well. He has not been sentenced yet. Some think that he might get as much as 10 years in, in prison um, for his uh, evangelistic efforts there in Chengdu. But China Partnership has asked churches in America to pray on December 9th. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to gather here at 6.30 p.m. in the fellowship hall to pray. And uh, China Partnership has given pretty clear agenda for how that should happen. So it'll be different than our weekly Wednesday night prayer meeting. There will be some videos so that will help you be informed and updated on what's going on there in the country. Uh, so we'll be meeting from like 6.30 to 8 o'clock um, next Monday night. So I hope you can come, mark that on your calendar. That will take place of our prayer meeting that week. So we do have a weekly prayer meeting on Wednesday night, 6.30. And so we will be meeting this Wednesday for that purpose. Next week we'll meet Monday and then not Wednesday. All right? December 9th, 6.30 p.m. Well, one of the most um, perplexing aspects of the Christian life is something we're going to talk about today, and what I mean is the problem of unanswered prayer. It's one of the most difficult things that we as Christians, believers, deal with. We go to the Lord fervently praying and asking for a variety of things, maybe healing from an ailment or disease, maybe a job or a better job, Maybe reconciliation with a spouse or a friend. Um, Might pray for a child, grandchild. Single people pray for spouses. You might be in prayer for the conversion of a spouse or a son or a daughter or a friend or a mother or a father. And you've been praying for years and years and the prayer has not been answered. And you're disappointed. You're disappointed in God. And you think, I've been serving God all of these years, and these things that I'm asking for, conversion, a spouse, are good things. And you think to yourself, what's so hard, God, about answering this little prayer? 
and you become disillusioned and you start wondering if you want to pray to God at all. Probably something that all of us have dealt with at some point, the problem of unanswered prayer. One of the beautiful things about the scriptures is that in the word of God, there are so many little incidents that match our experience. And even in the Bible, we have a situation that matches the experience of having our prayers unanswered. And in fact, the one whose prayer was not answered in the passage we're looking at today is Jesus himself. Jesus experienced the problem of unanswered prayer in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, Luke chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 39 to 46. We are in a sermon series called Route 66 here. We're going through the Bible at New Life, one sermon per Bible book. We started in Genesis, moving our way toward Revelation. We just began the New Testament recently, and today we're looking at the third gospel. We've looked at Matthew and Mark, the birth of Jesus and Matthew, kind of the teaching of Jesus and Mark. We looked at a parable from Mark. Um, today we're seeing Jesus get close to the crucifixion. We'll look at John next week and think about the resurrection. But today it's Luke. So who is Luke? Luke is the author of this gospel. Luke was a Gentile. He was a highly educated man, a doctor, we believe. He was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. He relied on Mark. We believe he was a companion of Mark. Got a lot of his information from Mark, as I mentioned, I think, last week. The other three Gospels built much of what they wrote on the book of Mark. Mark was the first Gospel written, we believe. Um, Luke actually has written more words of the New Testament than anybody else. That might surprise you a little because Paul is the one who wrote the most books of the New Testament. Yes, that's true. But Luke has actually written the most words. He wrote the whole Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts, 28 chapters in Acts. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But Luke is the author of both those books, has written the most words in the New Testament. We believe that Gospel of Luke was written probably 60 to 62 A.D., so 30 or so years after the resurrection of Jesus. Major events in the book of Luke, the birth of Jesus. In fact, many of um, the birth narratives that we read and think about during Christmas and Advent come from Luke, including the story of Mary and Elizabeth. Uh, many healings and miracles that are in all four Gospels are also in Luke um, the Good Samaritan and Parable of the Prodigal Son, very well-known passages. We know those primarily from their appearance in Luke and, of course, crucifixion and resurrection. Themes in the book of Luke, the gospel for the whole world. Luke is a, a Gentile, not a Jew, so he has a heart in particular for Gentiles, but also the prevalence of the work of the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty of God over all events, and yes... One of the themes of Luke is prayer. Prayer is mentioned in Luke more than uh, any other gospel. So, we're going to read this passage here, this famous story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. You can take that out and turn to page 514. It will help you to have the scriptures open before your eyes. So, if you're able, please stand. Luke 22, starting at verse 39. This is immediately after the Last Supper. 
and before Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And um, as was his custom, this passage says, it was the habit of Jesus to go to a particular place and pray. And that's what this passage tells us about. Verse 39. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Lord, would you please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, um, this passage, this story is included in Matthew and Mark as well. Um, it gives us a little lesson in the differences in the gospel. Sometimes you'll get details in one gospel that you won't get in another. It doesn't mean that they're contradictory. It's just we have different individuals writing different accounts, and they have chosen to include different details. So, I'll refer to Matthew here and there. But what I want to answer, the question that I want to answer from this passage is why would God not answer your prayers? Or why would God answer no to your prayers? What reasons can possibly exist for that? And we'll look at three things here from this passage. I think we want to be careful about always drawing a one-to-one -one correlation between what the Father does with Jesus and what God does with us. Not always the same, but nonetheless, there's much I think we can learn here. And this is the first thing that I think God could be doing in not answering your prayers, is that he might be doing it so that he can conform your will to his. So that he might conform your will to his. That is, so that through this process of wrestling and prayer that your desires and God's desires might become the same thing. We are sinful creatures, finite, limited creatures in, in many ways. Our desires and interests very often are very different from what God desires. And so God chooses a variety of ways to bring our will into harmony with his and this is what we see here in this passage. Verse 39, Jesus comes and goes as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. Uh, this place named this way because there were many olive groves in this place where olive oil was made. And in verse 40, we see that he came to the place. Now, looking back at Matthew, we know that this place is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not mentioned here in Luke, but it is in Matthew. And that's what the place is referring to, the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. And this is where Jesus gathered. This is where he liked to go to pray. 
Uh, you know, there's a little lesson here, I think, for us. Having a favorite place to pray is probably a good thing. Is there a place in your life where you like to go? You like to get away? It's a quiet place. It enables you to pray. It doesn't have to be inside. It could be a place outdoors, as is the case here with Jesus. He finds this garden. It was his custom, his habit. It's where he prayed well. So he goes to this place, and his disciples, they, they follow him there, and Jesus gives them this command in verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus withdraws from them. He wants to get away so he can be by himself. And he does that in verse 41. And he kneels down and he prays. So what, what is he going to pray here? What is he going to ask for? Now, I just want to pause here for a second to address one of the, uh, I think, very common misunderstandings about prayer is that many of us think of prayer, many people think about prayer as if it's simply a way for us to submit a request to God and get what we want. You know, many of us are going to be doing a lot of Christmas shopping here coming up in the next few weeks, and we know how easy it is to order things. You go to Amazon, you find what you want, you place the order, and in a few days, the package arrives on your doorstep precisely as you ordered it. And perhaps that kind of custom in our culture makes us kind of expect that God would react the same way. And maybe that's what prayer is. It's like placing an order for a gift. We ask God to do it, and we wait for him to provide. Now, let's acknowledge for sure sometimes God does that. It's true. And you can probably all identify with a situation like that where you prayed and you asked God to do this or that, and he did, and fairly quickly, and it was just the way you asked for it and expected it and wanted it. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? It doesn't always happen that way. More often than not, what's going on in the act of prayer when we're communing with God, there's something powerfully profound and supernatural going on where in that communion with God, He, by His Spirit, shapes our will and changes us from the inside out changes our will to match his kingdom purposes, changes our will to submit to his will. Very often in prayer, what's going on is not us changing God to do something, it's God changing us. And that's why it's so important to be in prayer on a regular basis. And so Jesus comes and he kneels down and he prays and he makes a request in verse 42. And the request is very clear. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But now this next phrase, so important, so profound, so challenging. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. Let my will be secondary, Father, to what your will is. Now, let's not misunderstand this. There's nothing sinful in Jesus' will. There's nothing sinful here in his request that the cup pass from him. There's no blemish found on his lips. The scriptures tell us Jesus is totally without sin. I think what's happening here is that Jesus in his humanity, in the weakness of his human flesh, as he contemplates what is ahead of him, that is going to the cross to lay down his life, in his humanity he is, he is shrinking back at the horror of what lies ahead. The pain, the humiliation, 
of going to the cross and dying. And he wonders to himself, is there possibly another way that this could be done? Father, is there another way that this could happen? That's my request, Father. And, and, he, and he offers it up and he prays. But in the end, what he says is, Father, as much as I would like this, not my will, but your will. Not what I want, Father, but what you want. Even though I'm telling you what I want, what I want more is what you want. Is what Jesus seems to be saying. There's a guy named Paul Miller. He's written a really good book on prayer. It's called A Praying Life. I'd recommend it to you. And Paul Miller in this book says that the greatest struggle in his life is not discerning God's will, but learning to disown his own will. And that is not easy, is it? Can't we identify with that? I mean, we do struggle sometimes to know what God's will is for our lives, where we should move, what job we should take, who we should marry. Finding God's will is difficult. The harder thing, though, is putting aside our own will, putting down our will so that it will be consistent in line with the Father's. Paul Miller says this in the book, self-will and prayer are both ways of getting things done. At the center of self-will is me, carving a world in my image, but at the center of prayer is God carving me in his son's image. That's a picture of what prayer is about, a way for God to carve us and make us like his son. Let's not overlook something here that's pretty clear, and that is that Jesus does ask for this. <laughs> I mean, when you reflect on that, Jesus asking that, this, that, that he wouldn't have to go to the cross. That's what he's asking for. That's exactly why Jesus was sent into the world. That's what Christmas is all about. The Son of God coming into the world so that he could go to the cross. That's what this is about. Jesus knows that. And yet he asks, maybe there's another way. This is a bold request a bold request on Jesus' part, and yet it's not so bold that he's not willing to surrender his will to the Father's will. And that's, that's a really good model for our prayers. Ask boldly, surrender completely. Ask for big things. Go to him. Request. Make your request known. James says we don't have because we don't ask, so ask. Be bold in what you request, but in your bold request, there needs to be this willingness in your will to surrender it completely to the Father's will. So that's one thing that might be going on. I would not presume to know exactly what God is doing in your life, in your situation, with your unanswered prayer situation. I'm not sure, but from this text, this is certainly one reason why God might not answer your prayer. The second thing would be this, so that God can teach you obedience to him. So that God can teach you obedience to him. At the heart of this text that I've just read is this question of obedience. The question that hangs over this passage is this, is Jesus going to do it? Is he going to go through with it? 
All of these promises in the Old Testament that we've been thinking about over this last year and a month through Route 66, it's all gathering momentum and it's found its culmination in the coming of Jesus. And now it's like, is, is he going to go all the way through with it? One commentator said, the real battle has fought right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a high moment of high drama. Will Jesus be obedient? Well, he provides, he receives, excuse me, help in verse 43 with this task. There appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So Jesus is assisted, gets some help from his father. But one place where Jesus does not find help is in his friends. They don't provide much assistance here in verse 45 when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, it says, and he found them sleeping. His greatest time of need. This is where he really needs his friends to be there for him. And they're dropping the ball. They're sound asleep. Now, I think we need to be careful about being too hard on the disciples here, actually. <laughs> I think all of us have probably drifted off in prayer. We know exactly what that's like. We've all drifted, drifted off reading the scriptures. We've all drifted off in church probably from time to time. So we know what it's like. Let's not be too hard on the disciples. After all, it does say that they... Uh, Jesus found them sleeping, it says, for sorrow at the end of verse 45. That's the reason given. It doesn't say they were sleeping because of hardness of heart or unbelief. They fell asleep because of sorrow. Sorrow can wear you out, right? Grief, sadness has an effect on us. It makes us tired. It makes us want to sleep. And that's what the disciples are going through. They've been overwhelmed with the grief of watching their Savior be persecuted and harassed, and now they know what's going to happen. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And they're overwhelmed with sorrow, and that contributes to their sleepiness. But nonetheless, for Jesus, you've got to imagine this hurt <laughs> to come and find his disciples sleeping when he told them at the beginning, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Maybe the temptation to fall, asle uh, fall asleep. You know, be in prayer, but the disciples fall asleep. This uh, is something maybe you can identify with. There's few things that are really more disappointing, more hurtful than when you feel betrayed or let down by a friend, particularly your closest friends. This is Jesus' inner circle here. And they drop the ball. Have you ever experienced that? You counted on somebody and they weren't there for you? It hurts, doesn't it? I remember when I was in junior high, my little group of friends um, noticed that there was this new guy at school, his name was Scott Babb, and he didn't have any friends, and so we just kind of welcomed him into our little circle of friends, and we hung out with Scott for a while, and then Scott um, was a big guy, tall guy, so he made the basketball team, so he started hanging out with the, the basketball team, and uh, there came a time when I was playing basketball, and I happened to be playing on the opposite team of one of Scott's friends. His name was Robbie McCreary, and uh, Robbie McCreary really took it to me on the basketball court, really ate me up, and um, after the game, Scott Babb came and just started taunting me and trash-talking me about how badly I'd gotten beaten by this guy, Robbie McCreary, his, his new friend. 
And I thought to myself, we were your friends when you had nobody, Scott Babb. And now you're giving me a hard time about this? Now you're abandoning me? Now that's a small thing, I know. I'm over it, I assure you. I'm over it. <laughs> but I do remember it. <laughs> and I'm telling you in some detail what happened because it hurts when friends betray us and let us down. And so that's what's going on here with, with Jesus. The worst of Jesus' suffering is, is yet to come. That's true. But when friends let you down, it's, it's painful. But what's so amazing, what's so remarkable, what's so astonishing here is that through it all, Jesus is obedient. His suffering, his pain is not an excuse for him to not fulfill what the Father gave him to do. Precisely and exactly where you and I might falter and fail, that's where Jesus comes through in flying colors. Where we fail, he succeeds. A guy named Andrew Murray said this, it is in this denial of his will that Christ's obedience reached its highest perfection. It is from the sacrifice of the will in Gethsemane that the sacrifice of the life on Calvary derives its value. So through this process of Jesus praying, not getting his prayer answered, friends abandoning him, he, according to the author of Hebrews, learns obedience. Look what he says. And I think the writer to the Hebrews is talking here about the Garden of Gethsemane. Look what he says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We learn obedience through suffering. And it might be the suffering of friends who abandon you. It might be the suffering that you're dealing with now and that you're praying for something and you're not getting the answer that you want. It's painful, and it is a form of suffering. And perhaps what God is doing is teaching you obedience through it, just like he did with his son. J.C. Ryle said, Men fall in private long before they fall in public. <laughs> and by that he meant that when people fail to Pray in private, that's what can sometimes lead to the more public scandalous sins. And of course, that's kind of what happens, right? Because Peter is one of the disciples, he falls asleep, it's not too long before he's betraying his Lord. And yet Jesus was in prayer, and he was strong for the task ahead of him in going to the cross. So there's one other thing, perhaps that God <coughs> is doing in your unanswered prayers it might be so that he can do something far greater for his glory. Perhaps he has something in store that is far greater than his glory. You know, it could be that your greatest dream might turn into a nightmare. Depending on how things work out, depending on things that maybe you don't know about, and maybe you've experienced this, where you wanted something so badly and now years go by and you look back and you think, man, I'm sure glad I didn't get that. I'm sure glad things didn't work out like I wanted them to. Sometimes our greatest dreams turn into nightmares and God is in control of these things and God 
perhaps has something greater in mind. So what is it precisely that Jesus is asking for in this passage? Let's go to verse 42. And again, and it says that Jesus says, if you are willing, remove this cup. That's the key phrase, remove this cup. He wants the cup to be taken from him. What does that mean? What is the cup? Now we've heard, I think, some messages about this fairly recently. So let me remind you, we have to go to the Old Testament to find out what the cup is. So Isaiah 51 tells us, Isaiah 51, 17 tells us, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, the cup of his wrath, Jeremiah 25, similar thing, thus The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. There's many other passages in the Old Testament that make this reference, drawing the link between this cup and the wrath of God. The cup symbolizes God's anger and wrath against the wickedness and sinfulness and rebellion and transgression of the human race over all the course of history. That's what the cup represents. God's anger against Sin. This is what Jesus is asking to pass from him. Is it possible that maybe I don't have to bear your wrath, O Father, at the cross? And as Jesus contemplates this, it creates so much stress for him that in verse 44 it says he was in an agony. This is an unusual word. It's only used this one time in the entire New Testament. He was in agony as he was praying, this agony so severe that his sweat became like drops of blood. Uh, This is actually a a diagnosed, actual, real medical condition called um, hermatidrosis. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hermatidrosis, also known as blood sweat. It's where the blood vessels rupture and then merge with the sweat glands under extreme physical or emotional stress. This this can happen. And here is Jesus under so much physical and emotional stress that as he is praying, the sweat gives the appearance of blood. And so as you contemplate the way this is being described and you think about Jesus asking for this cup to pass from him, we just have to imagine how much Jesus really wanted this at some level. He wanted this cup to pass. This isn't just an empty prayer he's throwing up like a popcorn prayer. This is a guy who's praying repeatedly for this, Matthew tells us. Hebrews tells us it's with loud cries and tears. He's weeping, he's crying, he's sweating like blood. This is something Jesus wants badly. And the Father says, no. No. I know you want it badly, but no. It can't happen. And the reason that this can't happen, the Father would say, is that there is something so much better in store. There's something so much greater that I have in mind here, the Father would say. What is that? What is that greater thing? Well, it's, it's this. It's that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's going to take upon himself all of your sin 
so that you can gain all of his righteousness. It's so that he would suffer rejection from his father so that you would receive full acceptance from your father. It's so that Jesus would die so that you, trusting in him, would live. It's so that the wrath and anger of God against all your sin and all the sin of humanity would not be poured out on you. It would be poured out on him so that what you would receive is the Father's blessing, the Father's favor, the Father's love, the Father's acceptance. And also, Jesus experienced the silence of God, God turning his face away from him so that you can know that when you pray, the Father hears. His face is not turned away from you. His face is turned towards you. Now, that doesn't mean that you get everything you ask for, but the Father hears. He is listening. He knows your heart. He knows what you're asking. What we all deserve is the silence of God, but we get the attentive ear of God because of what Jesus endured for us. Think of this, all the benefits of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the removal of our shame and our pardon, the filling of the Holy Spirit, a new regenerated heart, the love and acceptance of God, the promise of a resurrected body, adoption into the family of God, all of these things are yours because of an unanswered prayer. They're yours because the Father said no to his son. Do you see how the father has something so much greater in mind for all of us based on this unanswered prayer? So perhaps that's what's going on in your life. Maybe God has something greater in mind. I, I, I don't know what your unanswered prayer is. I, I don't know what is in your heart, but I'm sure that you have probably sought that thing with tears. Maybe you have sought that with loud cries. The Father has heard. He knows your requests, and the day is coming, my friend, when you will know the greater thing that is going on. I can't tell you that now, but one day you will. And so, until then, keep praying. Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. Keep asking boldly and be prepared to surrender completely to the will of God for his glory, for your good, and for the advancement of his kingdom. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is so real to us. Thank you that your word meets us in our own suffering and disappointment. We praise you for that. Lord, help us to walk with faith and to trust that whatever you're doing in our lives, that it is good, and it is for your glory, and we are content with that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.